My name is Björn Schellström. I'm the head of the European Parliament's office here in London, UK, and it's my privilege to say welcome to all of you today and today's human rights event here in Europe House. We talk about human rights basically 365 days a year in the European Parliament, but, but today is, is, is a special day. Today is the day when we acknowledge the, the Sakharov Prize, and I'm very pleased to see that so many of you want to share this experience with us. I want to just mention a few things. I want to say thank you to, to UCL. Uh, thanks for organizing today's event. And I want to say thank you to the panel. We have a great panel here today. And uh, then give the floor to today's moderator, Tim. Great, thank you. Well, today we're going for a sort of Spartan approach with two kings. So Peter Zuzi, my colleague, will um, uh, introduce the panel. As Tim has just mentioned, my name is Peter Zusi. I'm a lecturer on Czech and Slovak literature and culture at UCL's School of Slavonic Studies. My colleague Tim Beasley-Murray is senior lecturer on European uh, thought and politics. Culture. Culture. Um, <clears throat> we're going to be moderating sort of in tandem um, today. Uh, and what I would like to do first of all is I would like to thank the European Parliament Office here for hosting us today. Um, I'd also like to thank the European Institute at UCL. Um, and uh, I won't go into names because it's a fairly long list of, of names of people who contributed to this. Uh, what I'm going to do now is introduce our distinguished panel. Um, I'm going to start from this end and sort of move uh, to my left. Um, and the first uh, person I'd like to introduce is His Excellency uh, Mikhail Jantowski who is the ambassador of the Czech Republic here to the court of St. James. Um, he's previously been ambassador to uh, Israel and to the United States. Uh, for that, he was uh, a major politician in uh, Czech Republic. He was a senator. Um, and before that, and of particular interest for us today, in the early 90s, he was a uh, close uh, uh, friend and, uh, and spokesman for Václav Havel. Um, Next, on my right, is Tom Moriarty, who uh, is a graduate of LSE, uh, where he studied socioeconomic theory. Uh, he worked for quite some time as a chief executive of a communications firm here in the city, in London. Um, he's a founder member of the Economics Working Group of the Occupy Movement, and he also is a recording artist, so also very pertinent for our combination of interests today. Here on my left is Professor Aliona Levenova, uh, a colleague of mine and Tim's at UCL, School of Slavonic and East European Studies. She's professor of politics and society there. Um, she's done a lot of work on uh, studying uh, the uh, themes of corruption and uh, informal economics. Uh, she's currently working on the concept of sistema, which she recently described to us very nicely as uh, uh, describing how people comply with the system by playing the game of open secrets and knowing smiles. Um, on the end uh, of our table here is Edward McMillan Scott, who is the Vice President of the European Parliament, uh, currently uh, with the Lib Democrats, Lib Dems, uh, but for a long time a uh, member of the Conservative Party, um, where he was uh, uh, outspoken for pro-European views. Um, he's also been very active in human rights issues, and in particular in campaigning um, for reform in China. 
Um, so as you see, it's a very uh, distinguished and very apt uh, uh, group of speakers today. Um, what I'm going to do now is pass the microphone to Tim, who will say some words about our thinking behind this, uh, uh, this panel, um, which is not in any way intended to set a formal agenda, but uh, we'll just raise some of the questions that have interested us coming to this event. Okay. Okay, thank you, Peter. Um, well, why are we here this evening? Um, well, it's, uh, the answer is quite simple. We're here in connection with the prize that the uh, European Parliament gives out each year, the Sakharov uh, Prize, named after uh, the uh, dissidents in the Soviet Union, that honours achievements in freedom of thought. And this year's participants, uh, uh, the, this year the, 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 the Sakharov Prize was awarded to two Iranians, um, the uh, filmmaker Jaffa Panahi and the lawyer Nasrin Satoudeh. Um, who are these people? Well, Panahi is a film director who's, who, whose films have, have portrayed the lives of the marginalized, uh, of women and children, people who don't fit into the system. As a result, his films have been construed as social criticism, and uh, since uh, 2010, um, he's been in various forms of detention uh, uh, now for six years, and he's been banned from making films or um, uh, interviews for 20 years. The latest film was Smuggled Out that he made, Smuggled Out of Iran on a data stick um, baked in a cake. Right? That's Panay. Um, the other uh, uh, person, um, uh, Nasrin Satude, is a, is a lawyer who has, who has uh, worked for abused women, victims of violence, abused children, but also uh, for the cases of various uh, uh, journalists and intellectuals who've fallen foul of the Iranian regime. Um, she also is in prison for 11 years, banned from uh, leaving the country for 20. What we have here, then, is an alliance of the arts and law. Uh, an artist, a filmmaker, and a lawyer. Someone doing experimental stuff, someone appealing to norms. And when we look uh, uh, to us, thinking about Eastern Europe, this is rather familiar. Because if we look back to the 1970s in Czechoslovakia, we see a similar alliance of creative activity and sense of the legal or, or the law at work. Why? Well, in, in 1977, a group of people came together in Czechoslovakia who decided to come and express their dissent, their opposition to their regime. Why did they do that? Well, they did that for two reasons. One, in 1975, the uh, Czechoslovakia had signed up to the Helsinki Accords, and they wanted to hold the government to the, those, those declarations on human rights that the government had made. That is, they wanted the government to, to adhere to legal norms. The other reason why they came together was because an underground rock band, the Plastic People of the Universe, had been banned. So on the other hand, they wanted to support the freedom of people to experiment and express creativity, create themselves creatively, <coughs> arts um, and the law. And from this group that called itself Charter 77 um, came a, a dissident movement out of these twin impulses, law and the arts, that eventually led to, took its part in the overthrow of the regime and the complete transformation of Europe in 1989. Now, in this movement in Charter 77, one of its key figures was Václav Havel, um, 
who uh, 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 was a playwright, uh, imprisoned himself for many years, eventually, as you know, president of, of, of Czechoslovakia. And in his writing, he formulated what it meant to, to dissent. Um, Havel argued that dissent was the art of the impossible, the art of not accepting the status quo as the only state of affairs that possible, despite all apparent practices. And in his own life, uh, his own work, he kept that art, he developed that art. Um, uh, uh, now, what we want to suggest today is that we can understand today's world, today's dissent best. By, well, one way of looking at it is to look back at what was done by people like Havel and others one year on from Havel's death. He died uh, 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 just after Christmas last year, I think. Before. But just before Christmas, I'm sorry, Ambassador. And to see what legacy Havel's ideas have for dissent today. Because this, today we see dissent all around the world. We see it um, in Iran, but also in Putin's Russia, in Charter 08 in China, a model that explicitly modeled itself on uh, a group that explicitly models itself on, on the Czechoslovak Charter 77. We see it in the upheavals of the Arab Spring, in Belarus, Burma, Bahrain, wherever. Of course, we, and, and here, the arts often play an important role, whether it's Pussy Riot that we could argue about, but certainly, say, in China, the towering figure of Ai Weiwei, who has made dissent into an art form and art into a form of dissent. Um, now, the, the, here in Europe, we're perhaps okay with dissent over there, but we're perhaps less good about dissent within Europe. And within Europe, there's an awful lot of dissent going on, whether in the Occupy movement that Tom is here to represent, or the anti-austerity processes in Greece and Spain. And there's a growing realization that given the complete collapse of the economic order and the bankruptcy of our political system, we must, we have to develop some art of the impossible to find solutions. Um, now, um, why are we here today again? Well, um, the European uh, uh, Union doesn't just give out prizes to honor dis dissidents like uh, Panahi um, uh, and Sotude. It also receives prizes. Recently, it's received uh, uh, the Nobel uh, Peace Prize. And perhaps we can be happy with this in some way. Maybe it's all our prize in various ways. But there's a task that remains undone. Um, the EU remains... Uh, uh, seems uncomfortable with dissent, as I say, when it happens beyond its borders. But perhaps the lesson of Havel is that our task as Europeans um, is to resist this sense of comfortableness to, and to draw on his legacy properly. That is to say, to demand justice and experiment, to be artists and lawyers, if you want, um, to dare to think and uh, do the impossible. Okay, so that's some of the ways in which we've been framing this. And I guess now, now we can you know, move on to, to very different positions, I hope, that will come from um, the rest of, of this panel that's been so good to come today. Yeah. Okay, I'll say a few words of how we're going to proceed. Um, we're going to ask all of our panel members first to uh, speak however they wish to the general themes of uh, this, this uh, conference today. Um, five tops ten minutes. Um, then what we'll do is sort of take what has come out of that, start to develop a discussion, and then open the discussion up for questions from the audience. Um, I think that you know perhaps we, we haven't given any any agenda, as I say, for for how people should speak to these themes. But but overriding questions that obviously will um, be in the air, as it were, are to just reflect upon what might be deemed a sort of renaissance in dissent uh, in uh, you know the last several years across the world, um, but in, uh, in Europe, in the United States as well uh, as in uh, 
places that have sort of overtly repressive regimes. Um, and so I think another question then becomes in what ways does the idea sort of model of dissent uh, within what might, one might call classically repressive regimes, what sort of uh, lessons or experiences might we draw um, here from those sorts of experiences? Okay, we'll start, uh, if I may, ask Ambassador Zhandowski to begin. Thank you very much for, uh, for including me in this, in this wonderful occasion, celebrating uh, some very courageous uh, uh, people in Iran by an award in the name of uh, another very courageous man. I should probably start by saying that uh, Václav Havel was a lifelong admirer of Andrei Sakharov. They never met, obviously, because uh, of uh, political reasons and because they were being isolated OS in, in their own countries. And he only came to Russia for the first time in February 1990 uh, as president already for the first meeting with President Gorbachev, but his first trip. Uh, led to a cemetery to the grave of Andrei Sakharov. He was there with Yelena Bonner, the widow of, uh, of, of Sakharov. So there is a, a, a strong affinity here and, uh, and just as well uh, Václav Havel would have uh, uh, admired and, uh, and uh, wished the, the best to Nasrin Sudute and Jaffer Banahi, one of them is a filmmaker, and uh, Havel wanted to be a filmmaker all his life, and uh, finally he made it a year before his death. Uh, he, he, he made a film, and the other one is a human rights defender, and Havel was uh, uh, just dead. But we are here to talk about, uh, about dissent. And, you know, one of the important things in, in Havel's thinking about dissent and I think it's quite relevant to our discussion here, is that one does not choose to be a dissident. One is uh, thrown by circumstances into being a dissident, uh, uh, by his own sense of uh, identity and integrity. Havel uses the Heideggerian uh, concept of thrownness or fallenness for, uh, for this situation, but uh, 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 but uh, what he means is that he never considered himself to be a professional dissident. He was a writer first and foremost, and in, in, in living as a writer and in doing his work, he became uh, a dissident. It's uh, kind of easy, and we many of us have experienced it, to do this in a uh, totalitarian regime, uh, you know, if you're not very careful before you know you're, you're a dissident. It's uh, somewhat more difficult to do that in, in an open uh, uh, system which uh, respects and uh, recognizes and tolerates uh, dissent. And I think there are, I agree with, uh, with Peter that there are all kinds of uh, legitimate protests uh, around us against uh, a number of uh, aspects of our uh, present condition, and uh, and I think that some of uh, uh, the protests are, you know, 
give us a lot of food for thought, I would hesitate to uh, call the protesters dissenters. It's, uh, it's, it's a matter of terminology, but, but there is a, 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 a distinction here. What makes, in, in, in Havel's thinking, I will return to that, uh, a dissident uh, what he is, are basically three elements that he uh, comes back to and reiterates in, in most of his writing and in most of his thinking. And at the core of it is a, an internal, not an external process. It's a process of being true to oneself, of being identical with oneself. And this is one of the topics he elaborates on in The Power of the Powerless, using the example of uh, the grocer who in his shop window exhibits the communist slogan, workers of the world unite, without for a minute believing in the slogan, and more interestingly, without the authorities expecting or requiring to believe in it, uh, to demonstrate that the totalitarian system operates primarily by pressuring people to divest themselves of their innermost identity through such and similar rituals. The mechanism through which the system exerts its power hinges on only on the greengrocer's willingness not to withhold his ritual approval, not to uh, to to display the, the slogan. In the, and Havel writes, individuals can be alienated from themselves only because there is something in them to alienate. Living the truth is thus woven directly into the texture of living a lie. It is the repressed alternative. And this is what protest and dissent does. It, it frees the repressed alternative and becomes one visit becomes uh, a part of the identity. The other element, the second element that Havel uh, uh, dwells on is the element of responsibility. One cannot truly be identical with oneself, be renew sovereignty over one's own affairs, as he puts it, without accepting responsibility for it, and something which is not entirely self-evident in today's orgies of victim. Our actions are always illuminated by responsibility, he writes. And by implication, this also means sharing the responsibility for the affairs of one's family, one's community, one's society, and eventually for global affairs as well. Freedom without responsibility is nothing but reckless self-indulgence and a search for excuses to blame others for our own faults. Responsibility is another price, part of the price we pay for our food. And the last concept which is, uh, which is uh, intrinsic to Havel is the concept of, of morality. And he's been sometimes criticized for that as, as, as a moralizer, not just a moralist. But, uh, but that, for better or worse, is what he was. Uh, and again, the concept of responsibility is meaningless without a system of moral values, because if there is no moral balance to anyone, to, to one's own actions, there is nothing to take responsibility for. In Letters to Olga, Havel examines the roots of moral thinking, again using a practical example of a man alone late at night in an empty tram who chooses to validate his ticket, although there is no one else present to reproach him if he does not. And he comes to the conclusion that the man's behavior is impossible to explain without a metaphysical horizon. 
objectively he shouldn't care one way or another whether the transport commission gets paid for the ticket or not. But, Havel writes, but I do care because I'm convinced that my existence, like everything that has ever happened, has ruffled the surface of being and that after my little ripple, however marginal, insignificant and ephemeral it may have been, being is and always will be different from what it was before. All my life I have simply believed that what is once done can never be undone and that in fact everything remains forever. In short, being has a memory and the concept of a memory of being is essential to us. And now how do these, and this will be my last remark, how do these three elements come together? I think he best, uh, uh, best uh, exposed this or explicated this in, uh, in actually a political speech in the address to the joint session of the US Congress in February 1990, which uh, 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 considering what he said was a very strange place to, to, to express it. And he told the congressmen and the senators, all 535 of them, uh, the following. The salvation of this human world lies nowhere else than in the human heart, in the human power to reflect, in human humbleness, and in human responsibility. Without a global revolution in the sphere of human consciousness, nothing will change for the better in the sphere of our being as humans, and the catastrophe toward which this world is headed, whether it be ecological, social, demographic, or a general breakdown of civilization, will be unavoidable. We are still a long way from that family of man. In fact, we seem to be receding from the ideal rather than drawing closer to it. Interests of all kinds, personal, selfish, state, national group, and corporate interests still considerably outweigh genuinely common and global interests. We are still under the sway of the destructive and sorrowly vain belief that man is the pinnacle of creation and not just a part of it and that therefore everything is permitted. We are still destroying the planet that was entrusted to us and its environment. We still close our eyes to the growing social, ethnic, and cultural conflicts in the world. In other words, we still don't know how to put morality ahead of politics, science, and economics. We are still incapable of understanding that the only genuine backbone of all our actions, if they are to be moral, is responsibility. Responsibility to something higher than my family, my country, my fan, my success responsibility to the order of being where all our actions are indelibly recorded and where and only where they will be properly judged. And I think I will, I will stop on this. Thank you very much, Ambassador. Uh, many thoughts there for us to come back to, and I'm very glad you also brought the words of Havel in here. But I think Havel is probably the only person who, in addressing the joint uh, session of Congress, has ever alluded to Heidegger. <laughs> Which is symptomatic of the sorts of things we're talking about here. Okay, can I just come yeah. in and say something that Gergely asked me to point, asked to, point to? Is that we are experimenting in forms of dialogue and forms of participation, particularly in the form in, 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 with this Twitter wall. I'd like to point you to the um, hashtag. I don't quite understand this, but a hashtag Sakharov debate, and you're encouraged with your various devices to contribute to the debate there and to, to, to put your thoughts up there and indeed your questions you wish to put 
to the panel or wish to be raised, okay? So that is, a, a, as I say, our experimental form of open source something, right? Okay. Um, we're not going to go straight across the table. I hope that's not too confusing, but I'm going to ask Aliona to speak next, then we'll have Tom, then we'll have Edward, so it'll be a crisscrossing. So, Thank you very much. I just wanted to mention very briefly, it is five minutes, isn't it? Yeah. Um, that um, I was lucky to be born in Academy Town, which is a small place in Siberia called Akadem Gorodok, where the famous nuclear accelerator was hidden in the middle of the forest. And the head of the Institute of Nuclear Physics was Andrei Butkir, who was a close friend or colleague of Andrei Sakharov. And of course, the interesting situation about my place was that we had a liberal KGB. And Butkir shared Sakharov's views. And effectively, he was the only director of strategically important nuclear institute who was not a Communist Party member. He was a live example that one could actually push the boundaries of the system. But it was only possible in a very select environment in the forest, in the middle of nowhere, where no foreigner could reach without special guidance of a KGB officer. However, that kind of system produced a very different form of dissent. And I remember when we shared some of that materials, you know, we never were threatened with criminal record, which my colleagues from St. Petersburg, for example, were threatened straight away for the same action. They could get two years, you know, um, criminal record just for uh, giving a book uh, retyped at their home. So that kind of a background showed to me very powerfully that dissent cannot actually be viewed outside of the context of the system in which it emerges. It's kind of should be defined as dissent from what? And that was my research question for many years, because a lot of people who come from background like myself, they think, oh, the system made me. It shaped me the way I am. It made me be immoral. And of course, immoral systems, oppressive systems, they shape people differently. And just wanted to give you a short memoir, a piece from memoirs, um, by Joseph Brodsky, who was a dissent of a kind um, as well. And he said about the system that if one had brains, one would certainly try to outsmart the system by devising all kinds of detours, arranging shady deals with one's supervisors, piling up lies and pulling the strings of one's semi-nepotistic connections. This would become a full-time job. One was constantly aware that the web one had woven was a web of lies. And in spite of the degree of success, or your sense of humor, indeed, you despise yourself. And that was the ultimate triumph of the system. Whether you beat it or you join it, you feel equally guilty. The national belief is, as the proverb has it, that there is no evil without a grain of good in it and presumably vice versa. Ambivalence, I think, Joseph Brodsky thinks, is a chief characteristic of my nation. And that is an interesting thing about the dissent. And you know, if you see that Twitter on the top, you know, why can't one be 
in two places at once, well, that's effectively what the system achieved in Soviet Russia, that people were able to think two things at once. And that created the phenomenon of double think, the double standards, and that fundamental immorality that made people who um, dissented from it, who were able to push the system to reveal its true face, moralists. And I think that's very important nature of the dissent, because it's really not about confronting power or trying to get power. It's just pure value-oriented action. And I think it's essentially which defines the dis dissent and also differs uh, from the opposition, which could emerge in any system. And one, the last point I wanted to say, um, to mention about this system, is that the oppressive systems are particularly interesting because they are really stimulating a certain kind of creativity, a response that is impossible to achieve in a liberal environment. And that kind of creative power of rigid constraint is something that um, is linked to marginality, linked to the nature of our responses, where, which is best described by another writer, Fazil Iskander, who describes living with the Soviet system as sharing a cell with a madman and playing chess with this person. So you can't really win because then the madman get mad and hurt you, but you can't really lose because then he will realize you are losing for a purpose, therefore he'll get mad and hurt you. So you have to find a creative way, and that is pretty much associated with reading between the lines using all kinds of ambivalences, using pauses, silences, same topic, in order to be able to communicate. And that's the legacy which is very interesting. I think it's no surprise that Iranian movies are so moving and special because they live under a very oppressive system indeed. Thank, thank, thank you. you. Oh. That, yeah. Um, thanks a lot, Elena. Um, what's interesting is that we're from this Soviet experience, in one sense, you're describing, and also from what Ambassador Jantowski said, we have something similar here about about the role of authenticity in, and, and but also double think as a productive thing in, in dissent. And also, we've we've had very clearly the notion that dissent perhaps is about some sort of moral position. But there's a danger there that by becoming about right and wrong, not right and left, it loses its political power. And I think that's a, that's a, 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 a problematic aspect to dissent, as the Ambassador also pointed to. Maybe we can move now to Tom, who, 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 who is, yeah, has a, perhaps a different approach well, to the practice of dissent. Maybe slightly different. Um, um, I guess it's probably worth me just putting things into perspective in terms of how I, how I got into Occupy, because apart from anything else, it, it, it sort of keys in a, a lot with, with what Harville has said and, and also what you're saying, Ambassador, in terms of um, it being, um, to a certain extent, a, a personal journey. Um, you know, having had some grounding in economics um, at the LSE and then having worked into the city, I was wor working there for 14 years and then 10 years running my own company, which I started in 1999. By the time um, 2006, 2005, 2006 came around, I found myself in a very interesting position on the basis that I was looking after companies that were involved in providing technology for trading, I was working with companies that were themselves being traded, 
And when you're on the inside like that, you start to notice things are starting to go wrong. You start to notice that actually, if it carries on like this, there is going to be an almighty fall coming around the corner. Um, and whilst in the city there is a, the age-old uh, age adage of make hay whilst the sun is shining, um, clearly that can only last so long. And I had worked through the dot-com boom and bust before, um, and obviously um, in previous, uh, before the city had, had been around, you know, when we were going through um, previous recessions. Um, so it's quite clear to me that it was unsustainable, um, not only what was going on in the city, but various other aspects of the economic system. And uh, quite frankly, I got to the point where I couldn't take it anymore. Um, and I, I chose to leave. Um, I chose to protest in a way that, that I protest, being a, a, a singer and a musician, and that is to, to write music about it, and that's, and that's what I did. Um, you know, when you're looking at the world, and it seems that not very many people can see um, that there is something about to happen that is going to negatively affect everyone's lives, you, you, you tend to want to say something about it. You don't want to be the person just watching the car crash about to happen. And there's a very good reason, I guess, why I called the album that I wrote, um, Fire in the Doll's House. Um, so that's, that's really what, that, that was my calling. Um, which brings us on really to um, how I joined Occupy and actually the reason why so many others did. Um, I should just read one thing from Howell. Um, and some of you may be familiar with the independent life of society, but I'll quickly put it in context. The point where living within the truth ceases to be a mere negation of living with a lie and becomes articulate in a particular way is the point at which something is born that might be called the independent spiritual, social, and political life of society. He goes on, what is this independent life of society? The spectrum of its expressions and activities is naturally very wide and includes everything from self-education and thinking about the world through creative activity and its communication to others, to the most varied free civic attitudes, including instances of independent social self-organization, which is a very good example of occupying, in short, it is an area in which living within the truth becomes articulate and materializes in a visible way. Now, I would argue, actually, that it was, a lot of this was materializing in a visible, visible way before Occupy emerged. Um, but clearly, um, something happens to break the camel's back, namely a global financial crisis that makes pretty much most people in the Western world's lives a lot harder. Um, and that certainly spurs people to um, emerge um, from the life of the independent life of society to become protesters. It's interesting, um, the word dissident is, is a cool word. Of course, um, you know, there's a romantic <coughs> deal associated with being a dissident or a dissenter, and it has to be said that I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that people in Occupy would, would label themselves as that. Um, this tends to come um, as, as a label applied by those that don't like protesters. Um, it has negative connotations and, and certainly when we, we came together um, we spent a lot of time being uh, certainly harassed, um, negated in the press, um, being labeled as anarchists, um, socialists, um, anyists, anything but pragmatist, um, which actually is what a lot of what we talk about is about. 
Um, it was interesting what you were saying there about left or right. Um, we tend, um, although obviously we are a very broad church, um, there's no admission policy and anyone can come in and, and they will have, we do have very broad views, but the sum total of what we are talking about are the sorts of changes that we expect will have to happen no matter what colour of the next government here or there or wherever. Um, these are fundamental changes driven by some very basic um, dynamics um, in the global economy, namely things like population growth, um, limited resources, um, and diminishing resources, and of course, an environmental change. Um, so we feel um, that it's almost undeniable uh, that these things have to change, and we're not going to sit down until we start making them happen. Um, people have often asked us, um, have you made a difference? Um, and of course, some people will say, it's your, your, this is utopia, you're your imagining, you're idealists, etc., etc. But one thing I would say is, I don't believe that. Um, in fact, I would argue that the, um, the path of the mainstream of society and humanity is a, is a function of all the vectors that are applied to it. I'm sure some of you would be familiar with the physics of that. Um, and namely that um, if we are just one small vector applied to the mainstream, that means that it is diverted slightly from there to there that might be all the difference that it takes to avoid hitting what we see as an iceberg out there in the mist. Um, we have our truth, and the truth is related to we feel we can see that. And a lot of what we are about is actually just alerting people to what we are seeing. It's up to people. They can take it or leave it. But we will provide what we know to be our truth. Um, and that is the way we operate. So a lot of what we're actually about is asking the question and providing information and ideas into society so that other people also start asking that question. And what's interesting about it is people say, well, why don't you have a manifesto? And we're a movement of the people. Um, surely, if we are a movement of the people, <coughs> manifesto or behavioral change, if we can call it that, is not given to people or meted out to people. It is about providing information to the people and behavioral change coming from that. Just to finish, I would say, um, in that sense, um, there is certainly a phenomenon happening anyway, whether Occupy is responsible or in part, or even slightly responsible, um, is open to, open to question, I'm sure. Um, but the fact is that we are seeing behavioral change. We are seeing, for example, a reaction at the local or community level to um, the operations of Starbucks. We know that transitional towns in the southwest, such as Stoneness, won't have a cost of it because they want to keep um, the uh, local currency or the local wealth within that community. We're seeing people buying wood burners in a way of isolating themselves from cartel-like behavior of the six energy companies. There are all these things going on. So I would argue that not only is it likely to continue to change in the face of these dynamics? It's already happening. It's already happening at a government level as well. We start to see nation states seizing back assets of national importance. We've seen them in Argentina, taking back some assets of Repsol. We've seen it in Ecuador, seizing the national grid. We've seen it with Putin, trying to obviously uh, recover control of, of oil. Um, so it's definitely happening. 
Um, Occupy is here, um, I would say, pushing for that sort of change and making sure that eyes are open to what is likely to happen if we don't um, be proactive in, in how we, we deal with the challenges of the 21st century. Um, the only other thing I'd say is that, you know, one, we can talk about the, the art of the impossible. I would probably argue that most people in Occupy see it as the art of the possible. Thank you, Tom. Um, very interesting remarks. I, I like what you were t talking about pragmatism there, because I think that that's something that oftentimes one loses sight of when thinking about protest movements, when thinks of them as idealist, utopian, head in the clouds. But that idea that you're talking about a pragmatic impulse is very interesting um, and sort of comes to uh, or could be made uh, to play along with a quotation from the philosopher Slavoj Žižek, based here in London, who said at one point, be reasonable, demand the impossible. One might say that that's sort of behind uh, what some of what you were saying. Um, finally, I'd like to ask Edward Scott Mac Macmillan Scott um, to uh, offer some words. Well, thank you, Tim. Thank you, Peter. Um, well, you provided an extremely intellectual framework for this discussion, um, and which is a bit of a challenge for me. Uh, I should explain. Um, I used to come to this building very frequently when I was a member of the Tory party. I was a Tory MEP for 25 years. And uh, rather happily, the European Commission and the European Parliament decided to take over the building when the Conservative Central Office closed. And um, the words intellectual and Tory are a uh, contradiction in terms, what you academics would call an oxymoron. But as uh, I'm uh, a vice president of the European Parliament, and next Wednesday we'll be awarding the Sakharov Prize to these two winners. This is the reason for the debate. And in order to focus on the issues thrown up by the name of Sakharov, his extraordinary open letter in uh, 1968, which really kicked off the dissident movement in the then Soviet Union, and so many other figures have been mentioned this evening. Um, I'd just like to begin by saying that, in my view, politics is the art of the possible is a slightly errant term. I've always turned it round to say politics is the art of the probable. In other words, politicians should try and anticipate uh, events, know what's coming down the track, and at its most basic, when, a, when you see a bandwagon running, jump onto it. And uh, so I think uh, that characteristic of politicians is quite important. What was interesting <coughs> about the dissidents, and I've been fortunate enough over the 25, 29, 27 years I've been in the European Parliament, always working on human rights and democracy, is to meet so many of the people who are celebrated uh, in this prize, not just the prize winners, but also people like Yelena Bonner, who was the widow of... Uh, Sakharov, who sadly died uh, in June 2011, herself, an extremely vivid personality, an extremely active uh, rebel against the Soviet system, who always said to me and others, look, don't just talk about Andrei. I was there too, and uh, although she cherished his memory, uh, she was a redoubtable character, and, and uh, I, I was very fond of her, and very sad she died. The Sakharov Prize over the years has been awarded to people like Osvaldo Paya in Cuba, to the Madres de Blanco, the mothers in white, who, who, who are perpetually uh, commemorating by their actions their menfolk, because it is men, who still remain imprisoned by and large in Cuba. 
Um, we think of, obviously, Václav Havel himself, who I have had the fortune to meet on occasions. We worked together on democracy, because that was his latter um, passion. Incidentally, in Cuba, he was deeply concerned about it. And Nelson Mandela, um, a tiring figure in the extraordinary changes that took place in South Africa. So it is important to recognize the spirit that moved all these people, whether it was um, the sense of <coughs> seeking democracy or the rule of law or other fundamental freedoms, there was some spirit which drove them. And fortunately, some of them, like Harvel himself, were artists. To me, however, <coughs> what we might just do, and since we've just heard from Tom, who is a contemporary activist in a very fascinating movement, and I have a researcher who actually does look at some of these movements going on around the world, including Occupy, is where the Sakharov Prize of 2012 will inspire other people to look at just what happened in the past. And I'd like to think about, briefly, two world movements. One is China. And I had the fortune to meet Ai Weiwei, who is the brilliant artist who uh, uh, was in the Tate Modern uh, uh, in 2011 with his extraordinary Sunflower Seeds exhibit. And I didn't know he'd be there, but I went, of course, hoping he might be. And I met Ai Weiwei, and he was the designer of, or part designer of the bird's nest in, uh, in Beijing for the Beijing Olympics. But he refused to attend the Olympics because he said, quotes, the regime is disgusting. Now, that's not easy to say for a public figure in, in China today, but he said it. And he's made, as Tom said at the beginning, using my phrase, actually, Ai Weiwei has turned art into a form of dissent. Because after uh, the uh, exhibition opened at Tate Modern, I went up to him and said, uh, you know, we were talking about a, a mutual friend of ours who actually is still in prison in China after four years, a human rights lawyer called Gao Shisheng, an extremely distinguished man. And Ai Weiwei said to me, in a civilized country, such an imprisonment would be, quote, impossible, to use the word of the evening. And he said, he went on to say, actually, and this is a relevant point to Occupy and other movements, that the young people in China today will not accept the continuation of this process. And he explained about uh, their various social media and so on, and the sense that things were happening. And remember, this was three months, or well, two months before Tunisia, and three months before Egypt kicked off. And he said, things are moving in China, and they were. So uh, I said to him, would you mind if I just take your remarks on my iPhone and I'll, I'll post them on YouTube. And he said, of course. And he said again, it would be impossible in a civilized country to have an imprisonment of this type. And you can still see it. It's a very bad video, incidentally. But nevertheless, he was there and he was saying it. That, that is the sort of combination of art and dissent, which I think is so vivid to people, certainly in China. So. That's one movement that's taking place. And uh, uh, the same year, I went to the Nobel ceremony for the award of the Nobel Prize to Liu Zhebo. Another intellectual, a mention was made of Charter 08. Liu Zhebo was <coughs> the author of Charter 08. He signed up 3,000 people across China, very courageous people, 
Because when they <coughs> signed up to it, they immediately put themselves under house surveillance, and many of them are now in prison, as indeed is Louis Jabot. So as we think about uh, Havel, as we think about Sakharov, as we think about all these distinguished people, think too of Louis Jabot, who cannot receive his Nobel Peace Prize. <coughs> The other area I wanted briefly to mention, since I spent a lot of time in, uh, in the Arab world, and I was, in fact, the first politician to get to Cairo the day after Mubarak fell, is this extraordinary movement that's taking place in that, in that region too. Because um, the prize was awarded, the Sakharov Prize last year, my suggestion, was awarded to Mohammed Bouazizi, who is the Tunisian who self-immolated, like the 100 Tibetan monks who've so far done it in, in two years, self-immolated against the regime in Tunisia, and he kicked off. He was actually number 19 in Tunisia, but he, for some reason, triggered a public response, and thank God he did. And the Sakharov Prize was awarded to him and to uh, Asma Mahfouz, uh, who's a blogger in Egypt and, and other uh, activists, because the movement in the Arab world reflects something which i like to just remark on. I've always felt I have no religious feelings at all, but I have one religious uh, sense, which is the perfectibility of man. I think wherever you go in the world, whether it's Cuba or China or Egypt or the Soviet Union or the Czech Republic, or as it was Czechoslovakia in the time of Havel and uh, Kafka and uh, Milan Kundera, people have the same instinct for freedom, democracy, <clears throat> the sense of family, and the suppression of these natural feelings was, I think, one of the greatest disasters of the last century. I hope that that sense of freedom, the sense of freedom of expression and thought, uh, will be the spirit which will be uh, brought forward by the award of the prize next week. So when, as we conclude this round of uh, uh, interventions, can I just quote another Czech? This is my favorite quote. It's not long. This is Milan Kundra in the, laugh, in the, in the, in the, in the laugh of forgetting. Quotes. People are always shouting they want to create a better future. It's not true. <clears throat> the future is an apathetic void of no interest to anyone. The past is full of life, eager to irritate us, provoke and insult us, tempt us to destroy or repaint it. The only reason people want to be the masters of the future is to change the past. Well, it's a cynical thought, but it may be right. Thank you. Thank you very much for diverse and wonderfully productive from the ambassador's very philosophical, as Peter noted, approach to Tom's wonderful pragmatism and so on. Um, we, we have half an hour. We don't want to be authoritarian. We wish to be open and democratic. So we'll say a few things here, but then we want to open it to um, the floor. A couple of structuring remarks. We have a disagreement here, really, about the moral content and even the religious content coming from Edward here versus Tom's very interesting pragmatism that the descent of Occupy is seeing the problems ahead, right? This car crash image. Walter Benjamin talks about revolution as pulling the emergency brake on the train of history. When you see history, the, the humanity heading towards uh, boulders on the tracks further down, right? So that's what revolution is. Suddenly realizing, you know, it can't go on like this. There is no alternative. Um, and I think perhaps one thing we're getting to here maybe is a distinction between dissent as political, which it very much was, say, in the Soviet Union or in Czechoslovakia, a resistance to governmental power.
power. And then the dissent that perhaps is coming in, in, in movements, let's say, like Occupy, that is economic. How does one dissent actually not against governments and ideologies and regimes, but an economic system? In which case, playing along with the system is not putting up workers of the world unite like the greengrocer, but it's going down to B&Q on a Saturday, some, Sunday morning, right? It's just taking part in, in and, 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 you know, being involved in, I don't know, paying your pension contributions, it's taking part in the economic system. How do you dissent against economics? How do you dissent against politics? You know, what, what's the question there? It's one thing um, I wanted to raise, um, and I just wonder whether, whether maybe the ambassador, first of all, has a couple of thoughts on, 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 on that. What's the difference then between Havel's morality and, say, Occupy's economic pragmatism? Well, a, a couple of thoughts then. Uh, first of all, it's not about politics. And even what Havel did was not primarily about <coughs> politics. Uh, Havel was a very successful playwright. Uh, he, he, all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, but because of he wrote and how he wrote it, found himself on a list, on a blacklist. Uh, he was uh, barred from, uh, from having his plays produced uh, anywhere in the country and uh, he was barred from traveling outside, and uh, eventually he became a dissident. Admittedly, his writing was uh, of a political kind, but it's a much clearer example is the example of the musicians, the, the plastic people of the universe and the other rock musicians. They had no political, as far as I know, they had no political ideas at all. I mean, they just wanted to play rock and roll. And, uh, and where they hair long and, uh, and, uh, and do they sing. And, uh, and they were quite brutally assaulted, their concerts, by, by the police on, on several instances. And, and again, their license to play was taken away from them, etc., etc. And uh, it was this incident that actually, as, as already mentioned, gave the impetus to do the Charter 77. So this is the first thing. And the second thing, uh, uh, the independent life of a society that, uh, that, that Tom mentioned. It's, uh, it's a very peculiar thing. And uh, in Czechoslovakia in the 1980s and in, in Poland uh, and <coughs> in some of the other uh, communist countries as well, it developed to an almost an extreme of a separate society. I mean, the, in the end, by the mid-80s, the dissident movement uh, produced its own books, its own newspapers, uh, its own art, its own philosophy, its own schooling, uh, its own dinners, even its own balls. You know, it's uh, uh, because, uh, and, uh, and it became a kind of a society uh, operating by its own rules uh, quite independently of the society at large. And, and my point is, of course, in other countries uh, there have been uh, such groups and uh, most of the time they will remain enclaves or communes and they dissipate but in some quite important instances, like the early Christianity or uh, 
or, or the dissident movement in, in, in communist Eastern Europe, you know, they became, they become eventually so independent, so self-sustaining that one day they simply take over. What is happening is that we are, you know, we are very well connected. We have a, an international, you know, network with other occupiers all over the world. Um, obviously, we're in touch with people in, in Spain and Italy and Greece. Uh, I mean, even in some of the places where you might not expect um, them to be, but um, certainly in Mexico, um, obviously in New York, we, we know them well. So we, we connected in that way, and I suppose the thing is that, come back to the point that you were making, Tim, um, that we, this, is, this is not against a, a, a singular regime um, with a, a, a border um, that, that limits the size of it. It's, this is against um, an economic system that we feel, um, as you might have gathered by the 1% the and 99% slogans, is, is, is malfunctioning and is not capable of, of dealing with um, the, the challenge of the 21st century and which increasingly is, is leading to greater inequality and not serving the best interests of, of pretty much most people. So we operate in a, in a different way. Um, we won't be storming um, a palace, um, but we certainly will be uh, writing about um, you know, ways in which the system should change. I suppose we could storm the stock exchange. We tried that, though, so we can't do that. But in terms of um, you know, education, we, we've, we in fact have written our own little book. Um, this is called the little, the little Book of Ideas from the Economics Working Group. Um, and that goes into 27 commonly used terms and concepts associated with the financial crash um, and some of the policies that have been, in, been put in place um, with, with complicated names to try and convince people not to look any deeper to see if they work or not. Um, which again is, is you know, the language of, of, um, of bluff and, and mystery. Uh, designed to stop people getting involved and raising their hands as opposed to just us. But um, yeah, I, I, I would say that um, we are certainly um, operating in similar ways to previous movements, just with, with technology and, and the ability to spread knowledge in a much uh, more efficient and, and global way, then that's, that's certainly changed that. One thing that, that uh, I've been thinking about while listening to all of the speakers is um, you know, the, the subtitle of this, or is it the, the title, The Art of the Impossible, that phrase itself. Actually, before we began um, this session, uh, Edward McMillan Scott and I were, were talking briefly about the sort of inherent utopianism that seems to lie in that phrase. What, what, what is the point of trying to achieve the impossible? Um, it certainly seems to go against the idea of any sort of rational or pragmatic knowledge. Um, and yet, uh, you know, it has to be remembered that in, in the 70s, when Havel was writing these things, what, what, what he was calling for it would, seem, would have seemed completely impossible. Much of what is being called for, say, in, in China or Iran today, seems impossible. Um, but, you know, does one engage in these activities in order to uh, sort of bring something about that's impossible? That would seem completely idealistic. Um, on the other hand, something that seems to have come out of so many of the speakers' comments is the fact that one does these things because there is no choice. It's not a question of saying, oh, wouldn't it be great if the world were otherwise? Um, let's try and bring it about. It's, as the ambassador said at the beginning, it's something that you just, it's not a choice you make. 
Um, Aliona said uh, something that it's, it's not a question of confronting power. Um, in other words, it's not a tactical or strategic attempt to bring about particular aims necessarily. It's something that is about holding to certain values. Um, and I wonder if that's something that, that, um, that we can reflect on a bit. That, I, that idea of it not even being a choice. Um, and with what Edwards was saying, the, the quote from Kundera at the end, you know, perhaps that would be a cynical version that you know, we can control the past, we can, we, can, uh, we can change the past, but we can't change the future. On the other hand, maybe that's also this sense of, well, uh, you know, what actually is possible? What is in our control? And what, what, do, we, what do we just do out of necessity? Um, and, in, and how does that make dissent something different from politics, opposition, um, all of those sort of means, ends, types of action? I don't know if there's anything to respond to in, in those thoughts or not. But. Well, I would reiterate the point that I, I would certainly distinguish between um, crisis-driven opposition and a value-oriented dissent. I think it is an important distinction to keep. I would also um, support the idea of pragmatism in the sense in which the systems are codependent on the dissent from them. Like take the hackers who are constantly improving our computer security because the more holes they find, the better security officers mend them. The same with art. The more artistic creativity explores the boundary between art and reality, the more interesting it becomes and the more questionable. I really like the points that were made about not idealizing the dissent or indeed the opposition. We are all humans and the natures of the system actually bring certain elements to the nature of the dissent, and they're not always ideals. I think rather than speaking about morality, I would introduce the notion of um, multiple moralities that the, they are existing and, and driving uh, the dissent movement. And the last point I wanted to make is, um, round about now, there were mass opposition movements that has emerged out of nowhere in Russia. In fact, they just celebrated um, first anniversary of the mass protests in December in Moscow and St. Petersburg. Tellingly, they did it in London. Um, so it looks like that sort of um, opposition also starts reflecting upon itself because it's one thing when there was a crisis of parliamentary elections and certain people came out um, in response. And one year later, they are not so um, preoccupied with that. So there are fluctuations in time. That is, again, you know, something that um, will have to be taken into the picture. Peter? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Were there things you wanted to pick up on on Peter's comment? Or, or, or well, I was looking at um, Tom's. Uh, well, interesting leaflet, the little book of ideas. Um, just one other for you is, why don't people stop eating meat, or at least so much meat? Because it's a disastrous waste of money, it's a disastrous waste of our resources, and it's very polluting. And uh, I'm surprised, I'm surprised you haven't picked it up. But anyway, there it is. Um, I stopped three and a half years ago. It hadn't done me any harm at all. 
What quantitative yeah, and meat. <coughs> I, I like the way we, we here we have a Lib Dem MEP contributing actively to Occupy's program. I'm so this is what you thought it was very well. Well, first of all, I have to apologize because I will have to leave. And, and, and second, two very brief comments. Uh, you know, what I think is remarkable and in my mind admirable about the, the dissent movements in, in the 1970s and 1980s, they were no revolutionaries. You know, they were not very radical by any, any standard, at least in retrospect. And in, as a matter of fact, they were quite pragmatic. If you read the opening declaration of the Charter 77, you know, it calls on the government to respect its international obligations under the Helsinki Accords and its own laws. Well, that's a hardly radical mm -hmm. program. And, uh, and, uh, but at, admittedly at the moment it looked uh, like a very, very radical and very courageous and perhaps impossible uh, thing to achieve, but uh, in the end they did. And my very last remark is just a point of fact. I mean, the, the difference between Havel and Kundera is that both are wonderful writers, but Kundera is no dissident. He's a cynic and a coward. And, and what, uh, what he lived in Paris. <laughs> and what he wrote about, uh, you know, rather dealing with the past than in the future demonstrates that in my <laughs> Thank you, Ambassador. Um, I think now we'd like to open this up to the floor for questions. But um, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that um, I, I see myself as one. Um, I'm just doing what I feel is the right thing and, and making a little contribution myself and, and writing a book and, and doing what I do. So um, um, it, I think that it's interesting. There was a, a tweet up there, you know, asking a, a similar question. I don't know if you tweeted that from there, but all right. Um, and uh, yeah, there is this thing about um, is is it fashionable? I, I don't I don't actually see protest protest as fashionable. Um, if it was fashionable, I would hope there'd be more people doing it. But there aren't. Um, and you know, we're a sort of small band of brothers that um, um, you know 
did what we did and, and are doing what we do, but we don't see people joining us who are sort of thinking, hey, I want to be part of the, the gang. Um, so um, I, my answer would be um, I, I actually wish it, it became a cool thing to do, but not in a sort of how I look cool, fashion cool, but you know what I'm talking about, in terms of, you know, actually, for the, I, I did a talk um, at the oratory school uh, about six weeks, and you know, there were some interesting questions that were asked by some of these kids, you know, some of whom are very switched on. Equally, there are some people, there were some kids there that clearly, you know, feel, feel as if we shouldn't be there, or feel threatened, or this, that, and the other, or, or felt that it's much important to think about, much more important to think about other things and not address some of these issues. Um, so, um, yeah, I wish it just becomes more cool to take these questions on. I just make an interesting distinction. Um, one thing about dis dissent in, in, the, in Eastern Europe in the past was it was about personalities. Figures like Havel or Vawens or Michnik, whoever it was. And in fact, Havel even says, to be a dissident, you have to be known in the West, right? And we still see that in China. You know, figures like Ai Weiwei or Yu Jibao and so on. They're these towering figures. What's interesting thing about Occupy is it's anonymous. Right? I mean, with respect to Tom, you know, uh, uh, it doesn't have these big figures. It's the 99%. It's about the anonymous masks. And I think that's very interesting. It says there's some different dynamic, some different social dynamic, that it's not about these, these big, you know, Sakharov moral individuals, but it's about the 99%. I think that's one interesting dynamic, which is probably linked to the question of technology, which we might want to discuss more. <clears throat> the fundamental is totalitarianism. Um, and democracies are so fundamentally different. I mean, you can be um, a dissident in China today, or Iran, or Cuba, wherever it may be, and you have to be very, very careful. So when um, Liu Jibo kicked off Charter 08, he took a big risk, and in fact, the penalty was to go to prison. And he's not well known in China. And I was speaking yesterday to somebody, the person who actually received his Nobel Peace Prize a couple of years ago, is a Chinese who was at Tiananmen Square, was in prison, and managed to get out to the United States, and now works with dissidents. And he said that the, the <coughs> problem for Liu Jibo and other intellectuals is that they're vilified by the state media and by the regime in China, and they're not known by and large to people. The, the, the uniqueness about Ai Weiwei is he is an immensely popular person because he, he not only has talked about the situation in China in general terms, but has picked up things like the, <coughs> the baby milk scandal and the appalling earthquake which killed thousands of school children. And he's made himself into something different. So he is a popular figure and he is trendy. But the difference between, as I said, dictatorship and a democracy is people like Tom are, are known to their own people and to, I hope, a wider public with his book and this slightly imperfect pamphlet, um, but, 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 uh, but, but he, he can be trendy because it's a democracy. I mean, I think there are a number of different la layers there. I mean, one might be the idea of, you know, as you were saying, trendy, that almost can function as a sort of advertisement or, or making these, these uh, issues uh, more attractive and thus more interesting to people. There might be then a more negative idea of, you know, fashionable, where it really becomes a sort of degraded form of this. But th this does seem to me like it... it comes back to what we were talking about before, the idea that dissidents, you know, well, you put that word in quotation marks, but uh, it's a lifestyle in some way. It's not a choice you make. 
It's something that you do because you don't see any other way of living. And for that reason, it's more than simply a set of political goals. It does become more of something that structures various aspects of your life. There might be something that's underlying here. Um, do we have more questions? Thank you. I, I want to just uh, yes, follow up that last comment because it seems to me that it's increasingly the case in prosperous, stable, relatively democratic Western societies that there are there's such pressure on most people not to dissent in a way that would uh, materially affect their security, their career, their pension, their their health, their their relatives' health. I mean, all the sort of things that worry everybody every day. And I'm interested to know whether you, uh, as a panel, see an interesting, um, like an obverse to the, to the attraction of dissent through um, either crisis or through um, moral objection. Uh, but are there actually, is there a lot of, a lot of the time, many people who are, who are not in crisis and who are sort of lulled into a sense of tolerance of all sorts of appalling things that governments do or don't do? Yes, is the answer. Um, I mean, let's just start. There, there isn't anybody in Occupy that is in Occupy because it's trendy. That's the first thing. Second thing is that in terms of what it does, does for your, your job prospects, um, and uh, it's not career enhancing, I wouldn't say. Um, it has to be said that there's a few people that have come up to me when I've been doing outreach. Um, and every now and then someone will say, well, you're doing because you've got nothing better to do. I'm just saying, trust me. I've got other things I could be doing. I'm doing it because I feel a sense of injustice and I want to change things, and that's why we're here, and we're going to do it. Um, so, you know, it really isn't about uh, it being trendy. Um, yes, it's absolutely true that there are mechanisms in place that make this more difficult. Um, not least, to be honest, um, on you know the, the occasions when we have been on a march or we have been protesting or we sat down outside the Bank of England on March the 12th and had a discussion, you know, we, at five o'clock we were threatened with arrest unless we left on the basis that there was a, the, the, the police, offering, police officer in charge decided that there might be a threat of breaching the peace at some point later on. Not that we were actually at the time. Um, that case was thrown out six weeks later after they arrested uh, five of my colleagues. So yes, there's, there's uh, a, a subtle and not very loud disincentive to protest. Um, not least, you know, the sort of, because of the potential implications on, on your future, particularly in times when, like this, it's difficult enough getting a job, let alone if you turn up and someone says, oh, weren't you one of those off? <laughs> Um, well, just because there seems to be uh, different opinions in the panel as to the role of politics in dissent. So I've got two parts to my question. The first one is, do, in your opinions, you have to have an overtly political goal for dissent to be effective and pragmatic, as it were, as we see in the Arab Spring and protests in China? And can you, in fact, dissent, is it possible, without being political in some sort of way? 
Firstly, I'm very against this notion that rules dissent as something moral and out of politics. I mean, Havel talked about his own political practice of anti-politics. But in fact, it was what was fundamentally political in the Greek sense of the word, which is emerging from one's oikos, from one's home, and entering the city, the polis, from which we get the word political. That's what politics is, is taking public space, whether tent camps, right, or not. But that's what it was, was actually taking over the public sphere. And I think that's what dissent does. It draws people together out of their private, alienated concerns. And it says, no, we are part of politics. I think it's fundamentally political in the sense that you know, Hannah Arendt, for example, talks about the, the essence of politics, yeah, coming together in a space of appearance in the polis. Yeah, that anti-politics is extremely political. What I think dissent is doing, personally, is reinventing politics or giving back to politics its real meaning that is lost in yes, the electoral democracy and democratic deficits and so on. I think that's, that's properly what dissent is. I mean, they had elections and they had politics in Czechoslovakia, right? But that had become completely under socialism. But that had become completely, what's the word, petrified and formal and meaningless. And what dissent was, was reinventing politics and giving it a new meaning. So for all it being anti-political or moral, I think actually it was, it, it's necessarily political. Uh, or political. Yeah? I'm sorry, horrible phrase, or political. My students will quote me on that. Um, but anyway, um, Eliana, but you, you had a different, slightly different view, or no? No, not really. I think what you brought up um, just now was quite interesting. That is the division between the public and private, between the home and, and the city. And when we talk about morality, you know, it's something that is centered at home, or, you know, it's individual-based. And when we talk about standards, you know, that are imposed on us, to us, you know, rules, some norms that are common in society, it's something that we share publicly. It's something that we all engage in rule following, and we are all able to go on according to that uh, mode. And that's a Wittgensteinian ways of understanding rule following. You know, if you are able uh, to go on in the situation, you don't need to explicate those rules. You just get on with it. And I think what's interesting about um, the Occupy movement that at some point they feel they cannot go on, they are not capable to follow the rules that are offered to them. And therefore, they are pressed in a situation where they start challenging and testing the boundaries of those system. And guess what? The system is dependent on it. It's dependent on you being there for it, to rebalance and to readjust. And I think it's really essential that that kind of symbiosis is kept in mind. And thank you. Well, thank you. Um, I mean, what I would say on that is, first of all, you know, if we talk about political goals, first and foremost, it's for government to actually do what they're meant to be doing um, in terms of representing most people, which it appears that they increasingly don't. Um, so that's got to be one of, the, one of the first things. And secondly, I'd say that absolutely, I mean, the fact is that a lot of people come together um, October last year with this shared sense of injustice with, with the system and with what happened in the banking crisis. Um, and there's a very good reason for that, because some of the things that we're talking about, no politician's talking about it. And we're here to, to start putting pressure on them so they do start talking about it. And if they don't start talking about it, we're obviously going to spread the word as a people's <coughs> movement and hopefully um, lead to some sort of political pressure so that they are talking about it.
I just wonder if you'd ask the speaker his view. Yeah. You yeah. seem to have a, an opinion. Uh, well, most definitely. I would I agree with what you originally said in that, because dissent is, with regards to the whole system as itself, you, you can't question the system or move against the system in any way without becoming political and looking to involve other people in that sense. But I doubt everybody else wants to hear from me. And I'll turn back over to you guys. Well, the, pu the public space now is of a different thing than it was in the time of the people we've been talking about this evening, the last, uh, let's say, since Domino's, <coughs> the last war. Um, the media like this, Twitter, uh, or its equivalent in China, because I think Twitter is not available in China, nor is Facebook, nor is Google. So they've created their own parallel system, parallel systems, but nevertheless there's a, there's a, a political space which has opened up. But I do, to come back to your point, if you define politics as something political, no. I think, for example, in the Arab Spring, young people wanted the restoration of what they saw as human dignity. It's as basic as that, because they thought it had been stolen from them by the state, as, as happened in all those dictatorships across the Arab world. So it's not in itself party political, or in any sense political in the way we might think about Tory Lib Dem Labour. It's much wider perspective, and the space they occupy, the, 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 uh, the sort of democratic process you describe as politics, is this new dimension of mass movement, of using the social media, of handing out leaflets as they did on the 25th of January and, and, and around Tahrir Square. They went to the shops and handed out bits of paper saying, come to the square. So it wasn't just Twitter. I think we have time for one more question. Uh, very interesting talk. And uh, um, I, I want to go on local issues. Uh, in UK, uh, around about one over a million British uh, citizens from Kashmiri heritage. So what you can, what we know about their issues, and around about more than 200,000 living in the EU as well. And in media, uh, they actually labeled as homegrown radicalized or homegrown terrorists, so how we can bring them in, you know, quite excluded. I, uh, I, well, I, I represent uh, Yorkshire and the Humber in the European Parliament, and I have very good relationships with the enormous number of Kashmiris who've lived there, and I recognize the problems that you have on both sides of the valley, but I, I don't, I'm not sure it has a specific relationship to this topic, and um, your uh, continued and happy existence in this country is very much to be welcomed. Um, <coughs> but as I say, I'm not quite sure what your point is in relation to this topic. We're talking about big issues, you know. And if we're talking about the humanity and we're talking about you know, like Chinese or Arab Spring, so we can talk about the Bradford Spring as well, if you know what I mean. So again, they are fourth and fifth generation yeah. and they're living in this country. But again, uh, well, to come to your point, I mean, one of the problems is it's not about the United Kingdom, it's about you finding a voice in, 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 in within the uh, Kashmir territories or India or Pakistan, not here. And I think the uh, anguish you find, because as you say, fourth or fifth generation are now living here, is there's no way of resolving those questions other than through the United Nations or the great powers acting. And, but it's not, I'm afraid, something the UK can do much about. 
I guess one feature of dissent is that no questions are not on the table, right? Everything can be asked. So, but perhaps we can have time for one more before before we wrap things up. And I believe that Bjorn, that the there's some reception to which we're invited, so we can carry on discussions where nothing is forbidden afterwards. Uh, to, who, who was first? Shall we collect them? Shall we collect them? Yeah. Okay. Um, well, mine might be a bit frivolous, actually. Um, I think uh, powerful systems and powerful people are seen as humorless, which I think is probably correct. Um, would the art of the impossible be to inject humour into dissidents? We have this feeling that, you know, it's grim oop north and trade unions and all that sort of thing. You know, you lot outside the stock exchange. Oh, you weren't a barrel of laughs, were you? Um, uh, and I do think that humour can so deflect things and so but I can't imagine that Putin's got you know a, that he's a barrel of laughs anyway thank you so humor yeah humor yeah pussy riot is a humor yeah yeah you mentioned earlier you're going to talk about the the anti anti-austerity in Southern Europe, and my question involves how can you, what happens when dissent can reach extreme forms of radicalism, as it happens in several states, uh, particularly I have in mind Greece. When we're talking about uh, human rights, and freedom of speech. We generally focus in Asian countries or Middle East countries or African countries. Is the panel aware, and particularly you, Mr. Vice President, dear Erdogan, of violation of human rights within the EU? I give you some examples. In my country, in Greece, Muslim minority for decades were oppressive, oppressed systematically by Greek governments. After the intervention of EU, today they are full citizens as everybody else. You are, I'm sure you are aware that the French government oppresses systematically the gypsy minorities in France. Is the European Parliament or EU in general thinking of doing something, or we are very selective for outside Europe human rights? Thank you very much. Thank you. So I think we've got three issues uh, to respond to in our in our closing minutes here: humor, uh, the idea of extremism, uh, and one might even think about sort of you know, radical right wing uh, movements. Is that a form of dissidence of some sort? Disturbing question. Uh, and the idea of extreme violation of rights within the EU. Should, should we parcel them up? Maybe I'm afraid, Edward, you might have the last one. Do you want humor? Do you want extreme forms of right wing radicalism? <laughs> you don't know the humor. Okay. So, oh, right. Okay. So, which will we start with? Extreme <laughs> forms. Well, you both have humor. And on a positive note. Sorry, you're absolutely right. Um, although it's interesting because we were painted uh, as a pretty miserable lot um, when we were outside um, the exchange. Um, you know, we were all drug addicts. Um, we were all homeless. We were all drunk. We were all 
defecating on the steps and walls. Uh, we're not actually that. Uh, we're actually quite a fun bunch. Um, and we've got some, we have actually some, some great uh, talent, uh, some great poets uh, who, who, who do do that. So yes, you're absolutely right and we'll get them out next time. Juma was very important in 89 in Poland. Orange Alternative was a parody of communism that the regime didn't know whether to take seriously or not, right? It was saying, you know, we love Marx. They were, were slogans like that. And nobody knew whether it was a joke or not. And then that ambiguity came to scent. Ambiguity of the sort that Aliona was talking about. Aliona, humor? Yeah, I would just um, want to add that political anecdote is a terrific expression of humor and the more totalitarian is the system uh, and the more extreme is the constraint, the more it creates political humor. And we know, for example, that there is an enormous revival of political anecdote under Putin, although it almost disappeared, you know, in the 1990s under Yeltsin. So there is this kind of whole sort of special issue on totalitarian laughter and, you know, how you laugh in a different way. Um, under oppressive regime. And of course I put uh, my very own ideal of knowing smile, which is not quite about humor, but it's about ambiguity and more subtle way of communicating that we know what we are talking about, but we are going only partially expose it and send each other a signal that we could read between the lines, but not actually articulate it loudly for the outsiders. And that kind of system of ambiguous play is really essential for the reproduction of those <coughs> systems, you know, that is a context for the descent. Can I just do with that point? But in a, just by way of prefacing my remarks, someone's tweeted on the hashtag Sakharov debate that the Arab Spring happened despite the EU. And if I ever said that, I would never repeat it, but it is not true. The Arab Spring happened because, as I said at the beginning, the people were aspiring to human values. And, and that is what it's about. The EU does have a structure of promoting human rights, democracy, the rule of law, fundamental freedoms, and a free media around the world. And it does it very effectively. And I'm pleased it does it. And part of that process is to have this annual Sakharov Prize to celebrate people of great distinction, dead or alive, who have expressed themselves in a way which is uh, remarkable. And that's why we're celebrating that next week and have celebrated so many in the past. The second point, to come back to your point about in, within the EU, there are new provisions under the Lisbon Treaty which allow the EU to act in the field of human rights, whether of um, infringements, whether they're immigrants coming in from North Africa and not being properly treated by the French authorities. There are a whole range of mechanisms available. It's not just the political message. The fact is you do have new rights as EU citizens within the EU too. So we should all celebrate those two words and everything that goes with it. Just on the fact that the other question, which is a very important one, I mean, perhaps the role of violence is important. Golden Dawn are dissenting, but they're using it through violence. And the tradition of dissent is, is non-violent. EDL, the London riots, is that dissent. Perhaps one could say, you know, violence is, is a sort of cut-off line, but it's a very, very important thing. I think we've got to um, wrap up, but, you know, the idea of this is to create a conversation that should open, not, not close, right? And there are loads of things that we should have discussed. Hopefully we'll discuss them over a glass of wine or whatever delicacies we have prepared. Um, I'd just like to thank the, the panelists, um, Edward, Eliana, uh, Tom, um, and all of you for coming. Um, wonderful. Thank, thank you very much. I'll hand back.